0: In these unprecedented times, we need effective immune support. That's why I'm excited to introduce two formulas that work, CV Defense and CV Acute. There's nothing quite like them. CV Defense is a daily preventative, the only supplement that delivers the six most important ingredients to optimize your immune function, including PEA, a critical molecule for long-term immunity at the cellular level. CV Acute is a fast-acting, great-tasting syrup for direct immune activation. It eliminates invaders with a fruit flower and root of patented Chinese medicine. I take it when I feel run down to fend off respiratory infections. Both products are safe, all-natural, and backed by numerous clinical trials. For more information and to order, go to TotalImmuneHealth.com and take advantage of discounts from 30 to 50% just for listening to Intelligent Medicine. That's TotalImmuneHealth.com. TotalImmuneHealth.com for the most exciting immune support products in years. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today we're going to talk about SIBO. Small Intestine Bacterial Overgrowth, and we're going to talk about how to test for it. Uh, This is a very important uh, consideration because, well, we need some objective metric. We're going to talk all about what SIBO is, and we're going to talk to an expert in the testing thereof. He's Gary Stapleton, and he's founder of Aerodiagnostics, which is a laboratory that specializes in testing for... Uh, gastrointestinal maladies using breath testing. We're going to go through the full scope of tests that they offer. Uh, Gary has uh, a very interesting history. He's been doing uh, a variety of things uh, in business with the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, his uh, family uh, has a background working in lab sciences. And um, he is now the founder of Aerodiagnostics Laboratories, well, Find out a little bit about his uh, journey. Of interest, uh, Gary served in the United States Marine Corps. So, Gary, uh, drop and give me forty, okay?
1: <laughs> Only forty? We'll
0: Ura. Go from there. <laughs> Oorah. Oorah. That's right. That's right. Uh, so, I mean, Thank obviously, uh, <laughs> I think your uh, training <laughs> the Marine Corps uh, has prepared you for the rigors of uh, the business world, and uh, certainly, uh, lab testing uh, is uh, uh, kind of a challenging boot camp. Uh, for many people, because well, it it's it's a difficult business. Let's put it that way. Um, so, first of all, you, give us a little bit of uh, information about why you gravitated towards this specialization within uh, the lab world, because y- your family uh, has a background in this in this business, correct?
1: Yes, myself and you know the the broader family, absolutely. So, essentially, I, as you had mentioned, I was in healthcare my entire career, and I started off primarily in pharmaceutical, but it gravitated past that and then entered molecular diagnostics and medical devices and then toxicology laboratory work. And I was always brought into these, um, these projects, I call them to run, you know, the medical device company or the toxicology companies when there were issues to resolve, things to fix. And as I was completing one project, I knew that I had a period of time open uh, kind of a side story i I had this old sports industry uh, injury that I wanted to take care of, so I was saying, okay, I'm going to take care of this and I, I spent about uh, two days on the couch after after you know recuperating from the surgery, and I had been approached several times about breath testing because of the inconsistencies that are in the marketplace so when i um, when I had that time i you know, I had some friends visiting and we were talking about. Um, the challenges with, specifically with breath testing and specifically within SIBO. And the challenges were, and we were experiencing this as a family, by the way, so we had a case and we couldn't. We were asked to go to a very well-known hospital in the Boston area um, to do the testing and quickly discerned that the technicians that were administering the the not only the preparation guidelines but the collection guidelines to the actual test and the scheduling was inconvenient, so there are many factors playing into the fact that there was variability in the test, which is ironic because that is why there are many out there that feel that, um, you know, SIBO and breath testing, it's something we can't really work with. They, no they question the legitimacy
0: of the of the whole uh, concept, I think.
1: They absolutely do. And, they, and, you know, I'll be the first one in, in my space to... You know, to acknowledge the reasons for that, the reasons for the challenges are that the test, that you're, they're not prepping correctly, that, you know, the, the right machines aren't being used, the right technicians, you know, aren't being trained. So there are so many factors that play into the, what leads to accurate data. And, and when you do this right, it's a very binary test. What do I mean by mm-hmm. that? Yeah. It's 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 kind of interesting when you really think about what we're doing here. If you have bacteria where it doesn't belong, bacteria anywhere, bacteria is what produces the, um, you know, when it's feeding on something, it ferments, and that's what produces hydrogen or methane gas. The human body doesn't produce it. So if you prep correctly, meaning you follow the limited diet that was outlined in the data to follow for the first 12 hours of the prep is 24-hour prep and you then fast for 12 hours typically overnight when you inch when you take your first breath specimen and then introduce a substrate whether that be lactulose or glucose that's when um that lactulose or glucose will feed the bacteria and based on time we have gas production and the interesting thing is as i mentioned, that. The, You know, the human body won't produce the gas. If we get a specimen in the lab and we have a volume of hydrogen or methane gas, we know that that's bacteria. So based on time, and and we can we can debate that, you know, we can debate, well, is 90 minutes or 120 minutes. We can debate that, but when there's gas presence, there's Mm -hmm. bacteria. So are you in the small intestine? Are you in the colon? It's a very binary test. Mm -hmm. If you use the right equipment, if you do the right prep, and if you do the right thing in the laboratory, then it just becomes an interpretation discussion. What, how are we going to interpret the data? Right. And we can talk about that. So I'll pause and leave it at sure. that for, for right now.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there, those are some issues we're going to get into, but you know, let's back up a little bit and let, let's talk about what is SIBO and why is it suddenly burgeoned into such a popular diagnosis? I, you know, I've been around for a while and, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we didn't talk about SIBO. Maybe we talked about Canada, the yeast connection uh, dysbiosis was a term that we used when the bacteria weren't right somehow, but then SIBO came into prominence. So what's up with that?
1: Absolutely. So thanks for the question. I will tell you the, uh, you know, small, SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, it, and it's still in some, in some circles, is still considered, is this really a, a, a condition or is it not? And it's very clear. We know, the, the data is there that the small intestine is supposed to have less than 10 to the three colony forming units of bacteria, the large intestine, or the colon, is supposed to have more than 10 to the five, much more than 10 to the five colony forming units. So why, to your point, why has Sibo now bludgeoned on the on the marketplace? Well, one, there was there weren't tests way back when. The original tests that were done with breath to detect gas were hydrogen only tests, And it actually started from the manufacturer of the best machines that I think are, are available to date right now, the Quintron family, and it's specifically Lyle Hamilton, Dr. Lyle Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And he worked with a doctor out of Guatemala, and they kind of collaborated and said, hey, I wonder if we can test breath to, to see if we mm-hmm. have uh, bacteria here. And that's where it started, and then it evolved and it evolved. And then in the early 2000s, and methane came on um, just after 2006, um, between 2006-2009, they started measuring methane. And so when you had these early hydrogen-only tests, and Dr. Hoffman, I can't tell you how many hydrogen-only machines are still in play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get called by hospitals all the time. And they say, come on in, we want to see, I want you to review, because I train hospitals how to use their own equipment. And I walk in, and it's a hydrogen-only machine. And I said, you might as well take 35% of these and just throw them away because mm-hmm. you're going to be wrong 35% of the time. So anyway, I think to your question, why has it come on? Because the testing and the treatments and the approach to SIBO has changed, and we're seeing the gut-brain connection and, and so many factors going into this. In the large-scale studies now, um, you know, there are, there, are, there are several very large-scale studies underway, as we all know, with regard to SIBO and IBS and IBSC, and, and there are various products coming out. There's a new SYN-10 based on lovastatin that's coming out um, for this. So there, there's so many... The, I, I Maybe the short answer is that the the big investment is now being made right. in the area to really do the work to uncover it. But you can't have that if you don't have good data.
0: Right. And yeah, I, I think part sense. of the impetus towards uh, diagnosing SIBO, or at least treating SIBO, has come from the advent of uh, a very expensive new medication, relatively new. It's been around for 8 or 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zifaxin, uh or Rifaximin. Which is right. uh, usually the go-to treatment for SIBO, but I, unfortunately, the, what I see a lot of in my practice is doctors who say, "Oh, you have gas and bloating, you have IBS. Here's the pill for IBS," and then they just go right to the medication uh, without testing. Is is that you know in their mind maybe you know they're saving the patient money. They're just cutting to the chase here. Try it. If you're better, this is what's called an empirical trial of uh, medication. If you're better then you had SIBO, uh, is I a would good approach agree- or bad approach?
1: Well, it's an approach, and it, if you wanna, if you wanna be sure to get 30, 33 people out of 100 that walk into your office that have that, that profile, you're gonna be good. The trouble is this, that we need to know, and this is the reason for testing, and I'm not saying that because I own a lab, use any lab as long as you trust and you see the rigor and what they're doing behind the scenes, and we'll talk about that, but the, the fact is, if you have, and this is based on, and I can provide it to you for your, for your audience, a 2010 Journal of Gastroenterology study that clearly clearly proved that if you have methane on a hydrogen and methane breath test and you treat with xyfaxin alone, you'll only eradicate the bacteria 33% of the time. Mm-hmm. However. You see a lot if, of treatment failures with
0: xyfaxin.
1: Yeah. Right. But it's not a, a failure, so to speak. If, however, with methane and you detect that, xyfaxin is integral in the, the eradication of the bacteria, but you have to layer on Combination monotherapy will not do it for methane positives. That's mm-hmm. why you have to test. So mm-hmm. if you have that, you have to layer in neomycin or metronidazole. And you have three buckets. It doesn't otherwise have known to be as flagellate
0: metronidazole right. is exactly. generic for flagell. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And and you don't have to use antibiotics. Antibiotics work perfectly well. And your I to your point, zifaxin, fantastic. Most of it stays in the small intestine. Doesn't? It's not systemic. But we are finding a little bit of it in the colon. However. Xyfaxin is perfect for hydrogen positives only. Um, Xyfaxin, neomyosin or metronidazole or flagella, as you mentioned, is perfect for uh, methane positives. Um, And then you have two other buckets to choose from. You can do herbal antimicrobials. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And herbals, if there's methane present, you layer in a whole garlic. Um, If there's not, then you do just your normal er herbal regimen. And then you have elemental diet. So you have three choices to go from. But, let's kind of focus on the Zyfaxan for a moment since you brought it up. Sure. And there, you know, here's an interesting thing that a lot of folks don't know. And Dr. Scarpignato out of Italy, a noted GI and thought leader in SIBO does a great presentation on this. And I'm not trying to suggest it's not my place to suggest that Zyfaxan there are, you know, it's not, it's not helpful. It's just that there are four polymorphs of Zyfaxan or of a mm-hmm. and the Alpha, apparently, is the only one that has the antimicrobial, and some, only some clinicians believe that the others are less effective. Mm. So, for the audience, if you're in the U.S. and you source from a local pharmacy here in the U.S., apparently, you are... um, going to get the alpha formulation. If however you source outside
0: of the US, which is common or, by the way, Gary, because it's so damn expensive that we have patients who are hunting hither and thither and yon, they get their medication sometimes from India to save money. It's a quarter of the cost.
1: And it is because it's not the alpha formulation. Oh. And low. so okay. and 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 so we understand now. I, I I don't I do not have any data on failures because there's no way for me to tell what is the alpha, what's not. There's not a study on that, and I'm not trying to suggest that this is that is just the 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 going concern mm-hmm. with that. It's a it's a position. It's almost like do we keep the patient on a diet as we're using antibiotics? Well, the theory is, and my history in pharma, the antibiotics, including zyvoxen, are designed to attack things that look like that look like bacteria. They're not designed to look for bacteria that is on a diet. So you don't there are a lot of there are many clinicians that don't want their patients to be on a diet while they're taking Zyfaxin. They, they believe in their opinion it lessens the effect.
0: Well, here's the here's the stat. I just looked it up. The average Zyfaxin price without insurance is about $2,547 for a supply of 60. Uh, which is, uh, you know, 550 milligrams. You may want to do that for, you know, uh, two or three times a day for at least 10 days. You know, we're talking about uh, half of 2547 at the very least. Some patients require several rounds of treatment. So we're talking, uh, you know, four figures here. Uh, it's pretty expensive. And, you know, I have to say that my bias is towards natural treatment of this uh, with diet modification, with some of the botanicals and herbs that we can talk about later. Uh, but who should suspect that they might have um, SIBO? I know, again, I'm putting this to you as, a, as a, a lab specialist. You're not a clinician. But what types of patients are uh, being sent for testing by their physicians under the suspicion that they might have small intestine bacterial overgrowth? Is it just GI problems, or does it go? is the scope larger than that? This
1: is by far the best question. Thank you for asking it. Absolutely not. And I'll tell you, My largest client is a rheumatology office that sees joint Mm. pain only, and they screen for SIBO and get a 60% positive hit rate. They treat for SIBO, and they resolve the joint pain. So the best way, the best way to determine your patient presents, and and I, I get this from clinicians because I'm on the phone with clinicians every day reviewing results from a laboratory perspective with their clinical impressions. The best, the correlation that I've seen, those that place an order for a test, and and we get a positive or a negative result, is when a clinician will say, okay, a patient presents with one or more of the following, bloating, cramping, nausea, joint pain, restless leg syndrome, rosacea, or any skin type of manifestation. And here's the key: They're chronic, and chronic as defined as any time of day, any day of week, any type of food. Because if you think about it, going back to the binary nature of this, If there is bacteria, it will not, where it doesn't belong in the small intestine, it will not discern between two o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the afternoon. It won't discern between any type of food. Yes, less effect with, with, uh, low fold maps, you know, foods, right? But still, it's still feeding it. When you feed bacteria, you're going to get symptoms. So, patient presents. Any of those that I mentioned, and it's chronic any time of day, day a week type of food. And if you have it every time it's postprandial, that's your key to test for SIBO. And then be sure that we test correctly, tighten down everything. We're going to talk about that because it's incredibly important. And then we know when we have gas data, we can interpret the levels of it. We can debate it all we want. But when there's gas, that means there's bacteria. And if you have the chronic postprandial symptoms and you match those clinical impressions, Only diagnosis can come from a treating clinician, not the laboratory, and not, you know, from the patient.
0: Right. So most typically we hear patients will say, you know, I'm trying to figure out what food it is, but it doesn't seem to matter. It's no matter what I eat. But especially, perhaps, if they eat a very high-carbohydrate meal, uh, they get uh, a worsening of their symptoms. And the symptoms also comprise uh, psychological symptoms. So typically, it's referred to as brain fog, uh, but that could also be translated into a psychiatric diagnosis of depression uh, or a uh, rheumatological diagnosis of fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, uh, because the brain is affected by, you know, there's a gut-brain axis, and the brain's affected by the bacterial proliferation in the gut
1: absolutely and and dr. Hoffman I might add to that you'll notice with a SIBO patients there's a higher uh, prevalence of anxiety and or depression and that's a direct relation to the fact that they every time they they eat something they, they feel ill so it develops over the period of them having uh, an infection in the small intestine
0: right so uh, so what uh, happens when you breath test I mean how does it work mechanistically uh yep. you know you blow into a bag typically in the past that's what we tell patients to do uh, literally we would have patients go to a hospital or go to uh, a gi clinic where they had it one of these machines situated there and then you would have the test done there but now uh there's the convenience that you can have the test done at, at home and there's some advantages that you point out
1: absolutely and i you know the The interesting thing is the the first test that we did as a family when we were we were dealing with SIBO prior to owning the lab was going as I mentioned earlier on the on the this call the um, a very well known hospital very well intentioned hospital but the problem was it was inconvenient so you go to your you go to your um, your clinician your clinician says I want you to do this breath test here call this number you call you call you call and they're trying to bring in 20 or 30 people at once because they only want to do it once or
0: twice. They want to batch the test because they have one technician on hand and they're going to do a run and do a run, and, you know, the rest of the week they're closed.
1: Exactly right, and it's a three-hour test. So here you go trying to coordinate your schedule with everyone else's at this this clinic or hospital, and then when you go, most of these are in urban areas, inconvenient, whether it be from parking, whether it be from, you know, now you're down in a basement usually where where labs are located so you don't have Internet, you don't have phone, all this business. And then, more importantly, you're introducing variability. Why? Because they're doing it once a week, they don't understand how the machines work by and large. And I know that from, for a fact because I taught several of the very well-known hospitals in Boston how to be more accurate with this. So what they'll do is they'll have some technician that maybe read a manual or maybe was taught by someone else who was taught by someone else. So it's whispered down the lane. This is what we experience. They, they coordinated this. They coordinated it for the collection to be at one o'clock in the afternoon. Anyone that has had to be on a limited diet for 12 hours and then fast for 12 hours, you don't want to fast until one o'clock in the afternoon and then do a three hour breath test to four in the afternoon, right? You want to fast overnight, wake up, collect your breath and be done with mm-hmm. this. So it was a convenience thing. But when we were there in these clinics, these, these technicians were coming out and you could tell they didn't understand it. But leading up to it, most importantly, the in, the variability that was introduced was in the prep, because the prep is very specific if you look at the data. Mm-hmm. Chicken, fish, eggs, white rice, white bread, white potatoes. Somehow, this is transformed to highly absorbable foods. Well, everyone has a definition of what a highly absorbable food is. So you might say, okay, Gary, who cares about that? I'm a dietitian. I know about food. Well, that's true, but you know what? That hasn't been tested, and with today's packaging, you don't know what you're getting. And mm-hmm. what happens is, if you take something that wasn't studied, it's not reproducible necessarily. So if you eat something and it has some sort of ingredient or something in it and that stays, it just takes forever to break down. It's in the colon. So if you have food, a food source in the colon, Mm -hmm. it's producing gas when you think, because the way that the test works is you remove food from the GI tract. That's why you eat the chicken, fish, eggs, white rice, white bread, white potatoes, and then you fast overnight. That removes all food from the GI tract so that when you take your first breath collection, even if there is bacteria where it doesn't belong, there's no gas because it goes back to there's only gas when bacteria ferments, right? So that's why you do a baseline and then you introduce placebo, lactulose, or glucose as a mm-hmm. food source. Then that food source travels through the GI tract. If it meets up with bacteria, it will ferment it, produce gas, and voila, you have gas production. Now we can interpret, right? So. But you have to prep right, and here's an interesting fact. There, and I, I don't want to, you know, get into the controversy on how to interpret, but there are, there are consensus um, papers on how to interpret these. But everyone's focused on one area of the consensus when they should be focused on the most basic parts, which are the prep. So if you don't prep right, if you don't follow this diet, you could have gas production at the beginning when you think you're in the cold when you think you're in the small intestine but really it's just food left over from the last meal right. or you even have clinicians dr hoffman that'll say and they're they're well-intentioned they'll say oh brush your teeth because there's a lot of bacteria in your mouth and that'll skew the test well no do not brush your teeth it's not called for and the fact you're introducing a food source into into the, the, the or, or perhaps traffic. even
0: a disinfectant, you know, like triclosan or something like that. It could suppress right. the growth of bacteria. Yeah. So there's very specific prep instructions. That's right. at least part of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Gary, let's pause because there's a lot more to the art of this sure. breath testing for SIBO. We're talking to Gary Stapleton, the founder of Aerodiagnostics Lab, which specializes in breath testing for SIBO and for, uh, other conditions. We'll talk a little bit about that in part two. Um, that's, this is the go-to lab, uh, you know, after trying many labs and many ways of doing this. This is the lab that I've decided to work with because, uh, Gary is extremely forthcoming. He has, uh, staff members and a a medical doctor at his disposal who can help uh, patients, uh, answer their questions in terms of how to prep properly. Uh, it's a really white glove service when it comes to performing this test, which you really need because it has to be done correctly and it has to, there's also room for interpretation as well discuss in part two. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. We'll be right back.